You are listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. It is good to be together, as I love to say. And I really trust that all of you had a wonderful Christmas with your friends and family. I'm going to get a little situated here. And yes, it's time, so, you know, bear with me. I've got to wear my glasses now. <laughs> so this morning's message, what captures your wonder? So I grew up in the Midwest, near Chicago, about an hour south. And as a matter of fact, my parents are actually moving out of my childhood home this weekend that they've lived in for 45 years. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I just keep thinking about that because who lives anywhere, let alone the same house, for 45 years these days? So this is a big deal. My dad, my father, he grew up on the south side of Chicago, or like I sometimes say, he survived the south side, um, because that's the truth. And without question, he's the hardest worker I know the hardest worker, long hours. And he's a no-nonsense, no-drama, no-excuses type of man. That's my dad. So if you were to go to my childhood home, what you would see is a very modest ranch-style home with a large front yard and a large backyard. And in the front yard, tucked away on the left side, in the summer, you would see this white, flowering crabapple tree. And underneath it, you would see my dad swing. So as hard as my dad worked, as hard as he worked, he valued taking time to be still and to be silent and to let his, his thoughts kind of sift through and to let his heart wander. And I can't help but wonder... Where is my swing? You see, he would sit there and he would watch the birds and he would look at his flower gardens and you would see a perfectly manicured lawn and he would maybe doze off a little bit and wake up and wonder why his neighbor's lawn hadn't been mowed yet. But he just took that time, that intentional time, So where is my swing? When do I give myself that intentional time to just wonder? My small group was working through an Advent series by Paul Tripp, and in one podcast, he shares how you and I, all of us, are hardwired for two things. One is to connect to the world around us, to the people around us, and to creation. And the second thing is to hope for what's to come. That's hardwired into us, to hope for what's to come. That's been this season of Advent for all of us. That's why it carries so much meaning for us as Christians. But we often walk through this life in our collective generation, we're getting buried. We're getting buried with media, 
with consumerism, with the perceived best next thing or idea. We can get restless if we don't have something on the calendar to look forward to. We can just keep going and keep pushing and keep grinding. So my question for all of us this morning is what captures your wonder? What captures your wonder? So it's December 30th, 2018. And some of us are quite eager to put 2018 behind us, and for very legitimate reasons. And some of us have already color-coded our newly planner. (laughs) But can we do something this morning? Can we take this time that we have together And instead of just quickly turning the page, let's just move on to 2019. Can we give ourselves permission to sit together this morning, maybe swing a little bit in my dad's swing, and allow our hearts to wonder a little deeper about the newborn Messiah? The Messiah. He is the reason we just celebrated his birth. And I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. So let's remind ourselves of the hope. Our true hope is not in the presence we just offered one another, even though I love that. But that's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the Messiah. So can we stay here just a little bit? So to help us pause, we're going to read through a couple Bible passages of Jesus' birth story. We're going to fill out some of the historical elements of that. And then we're going to engage in two exercises that help us practice wonder. So let's start in Luke 2. If you have your Bibles, please take them out. We are going to be in the Word this morning. So Luke 2, the birth of Jesus, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee in Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and he was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So in looking at that context... Let's remind us ourselves of that geographical layout here. So what we have here is King Herod's ruling territory, all outlined in this very, very thin red line that you can kind of see on the outside here. And in that upper province of Galilee, that grayish area, you will see the town of Nazareth, kind of right square in the middle. So that's where Mary and Joseph are living, 
And they needed to make the trek down to Bethlehem, which was in the province of Judea, which is almost like straight down, right above, or right below where it says Judea, or no, right above where it says Judea is Bethlehem. So that trek to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem was roughly 80 miles. And the area of Judea was mountainous, was mountainous, hilly, at times rough terrain. And she was pregnant. Okay? So I don't know about you, but I I can't help but just sit with that and wonder about the strength and the endurance and the obedience that Mary and Joseph had to see this through while she was pregnant. I can't even imagine doing that in in perhaps her second or third trimester. I remember being pregnant with my second son, Noah, living here in Canby, and I went down to the Canby community pool for their water aerobics class. And, I, and when some of you have seen, when I, when I am pregnant, I am pregnant. I fill out nicely. And so I'm at the pool, and I had to convince three women that it was okay for me to be in the water, essentially stretching. And so I can't help but enjoy how times have changed, because here is Mary trekking 80 miles one way with a child. It is amazing. So another thing to mention is that when you, when you look at verse 4, and Luke writes that Joseph went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem, well, we can see, indeed, Nazareth is north of Bethlehem. So he wasn't directionally challenged, but what that was doing was giving us insight into Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Again, we're in that mountainous terrain. So often that's why it was referred to, we're going to go up to Bethlehem. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, even if their geographical town was north of that location. Okay, so that was helpful for me because I was thinking, oh, Luke, you are directionally challenged, but um, he wasn't. That was a way in which they described where they lived. So let's continue on here. Luke 2, verse 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you, and you will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts so, so thousands of angels appeared with that one angel who gave the word, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherd said to another one, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. That passage right there is full of wonder, is it not? The way in which the Lord chose to reveal the birth of the Messiah through one angel and then thousands of angels to these shepherds. And then they went and saw there was confirmation in that. It's just so powerful. So when the angels went and found Jesus, it was sometime between that day one and day seven, still in the manger and confirming what the angel had revealed. And then they left praising God. And I love that. I love when the Lord gives vision and promise and declaration and then we see it fulfilled. That they saw it fulfilled with their own eyes and how incredible that must have been for them. And here's Mary in verse 19 just treasuring these things in her heart and pondering them in her heart. So here's the first exercise we're going to do this morning to help capture our wonder. So inspired by this specific passage of scripture, I want to show you this beautiful picture of a painting by Gerard Van Honthorst, and he painted this in 1622. In 1622. And it's called Adoration of the Shepherds. And so I want us to take a moment, just take the picture in. What do you notice? And you could even jot down some of your thoughts of what you see in your notes. What are you curious about? And if you're with someone who, who can't see the, the picture, I would love for you to explain what you see. Just give them a few words of what it is that you're looking at. So one thing you'll learn about me is that I'm very comfortable with silence. <laughs> and I think it's good for us. I think it's good to just take a moment and be silent and allow your heart to wonder.
And sometimes all it takes is a simple question to just allow your heart to sit there. So let's continue reading in Luke, verse 21 through 24. And here's where it gets really interesting. So on the eighth day, when it's time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now on the first onset, man, that just kind of seems like a bunch of details. Like, I don't know what's that referring to or why it's important. But let's break it down just a little bit. Let's sit with it a little bit, okay? So first off, is it not fascinating how Jesus' parents still had him circumcised under Jewish law to completely align their obedience and faithfulness to the biblical Jewish law and cultural customs. That's really interesting to me because they were holding, (laughs) they were literally holding the very Messiah that came to fulfill the law. What a paradox. But important but important. Their faithfulness and obedience to those Jewish laws and customs was very important. So second in verse 22, it mentions the purification rites required by the law. And what these were, these were found in the book of Leviticus and they were very, very specific. And they were a set of boundaries. In order After a woman gave birth, there were a series of steps that she needed to take in order to be made pure, in a sense, before God again. It was a whole process. And I'm going to overly simplify what these steps were. The first was, in the first seven days after birth, the woman is considered the most impure within her cycle. She's considered unclean, and she was not to be touched, nor could she partake in any community, worship, or fellowship. Okay? So she, she has just given birth. She's not to be touched, and she's not to leave her home or engage in fellowship. Okay? On the eighth day, if she has a son, that boy is circumcised, And the purification process continues for 33 more days, so so 40 days in total. And on the 40th day, that mother and child would go to the temple, which was in Jerusalem, for her, and present two offerings, a lamb and a pigeon, in order to be made pure again. Now, in our Western culture, this can seem very strange, very different. But this was not Western culture. This was Jewish 
Hebrew culture, okay? So to help us understand some of this Hebrew context, I won't tell you how much sifting I've been doing through many commentaries, but there's, there's been one particular author that I've really connected with and really appreciate her work. Her name is Shauna Weisberg. And the reason why I appreciate so much her work is because, number one, she's Jewish. Number two, she's a Jewish author. And she studies and teaches specifically on issues surrounding Jewish women. So this was very helpful for me um, to hear her heritage and some of her still current beliefs. So here are some of the dots she helped me to connect. First of all, she explains how in our English translation, even in the Levitical law, that the term used is often cleanliness. And she's like, that is actually less helpful. That translation is less helpful. And how she describes it, she says it's more about understanding the purification process is more about purity. So less about bad, good, ugly, clean, and more about more pure and less pure. Which seems like, well, what does that even mean? What is that distinction? Okay. Within the Jewish culture, a woman is never more pure or holy than when she's at the point of her cycle when she's either able to conceive and have a child or when she's actually with child. Okay? And then her body moves through a cleansing period and her purity, her purity and her holiness is considered a little less when she's in her cleansing period. So this is the backdrop of this Levitical law. So she just had a baby, so now she's going through a cleansing period, so don't touch her. She's not to engage in community worship yet. She's cleansing. Okay? So, again, there are obviously some theological tension points there still for us that we would not align with. But can we sit here for just a minute and allow ourselves to expand our perspective for this Hebrew culture? Okay? There are parts of this process, honestly, that appeal to my introverted side. If you were to say, Shannon, after you have a baby, you're not allowed to leave your house for 40 days because you had a boy, and no one's going to touch you for those first seven days. I would be like, hallelujah. <laughs> like, I mean, that sounds like amazing to me. Um, that would have been ideal in my world. Uh, but again, there are other parts of this cultural tension that... Um, uh, we feel that tension of like, wow, that's, that's a really interesting belief because at first it seems like a shaming process for women that they would be tucked away and hidden and not allowed to be touched or seen or anything. Um, and that was honestly my first reaction. But then Shana describes that this cleansing period is called the Tumah in Hebrew. And it actually is not meant to imply any inferiority or degradation to the woman or to the mother. But rather, it's a way to honor her. And I was like, what? (laughs) It's actually a way to honor her. 
her natural ebb and flow of how God designed her. That culturally, women are actually believed to have a higher degree of holiness as a whole due to their own biological and life-creating capability. So again, cultural tension of we don't quite, and theological tension of more holiness or earning holiness or anything of that sort, but a way to honor the mother through her birthing process and healing process. This reminds me of a time when Brian and I, when we were expecting, when we were expecting our first son. And as we were nearing the birth time, our midwife gave us some really amazing words of wisdom. She said to us, she says, you're going to notice as you begin to move towards the birth of your son, your thoughts, your behaviors, your prayers, they're going to begin to move inward into this beautiful inner place. And you will move away from sharing life with all of you. You'll move away from that place into this inner labyrinth. And in that inner labyrinth is this beautiful sacred time when the Lord prepares you to welcome the baby. And it's beautiful. But here's the key, is that after the baby comes, if there are no complications that bring you immediately out of the labyrinth, you actually stay there for a little bit. And you bond, and you heal, and you have time together to wonder about this baby, about who they are, about what they look like. It's this beautiful, beautiful, sacred time. And it, sorry, and it occurs to me that because of these Jewish purification laws, these boundaries around the woman especially, that Mary and Joseph would have had this sacred time and space as a family. Isn't that incredible? Protected, protected by law, by God. And I think that is beautiful. And it brings me to that verse 19 where Mary was treasuring up all these things and pondering them in her heart because she was still in this, in this inner labyrinth of wondering and holding. Filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. Right? This holy, sacred time. This morning I've asked my friend Annie Wolf if she could come. I want to hold her baby boy. <laughs> and his name is Reese. 
how many weeks along is he now? Nine weeks. Nine weeks. Oh my gosh, I know it's bright, buddy. This is Reese. Everyone say hello, Reese. Oh my goodness, okay. Oh yes, yes. So, uh-huh. Okay, I'll go like this. So have you ever held up a baby and just could not stop staring? You just stare and wonder. And I think, I think because there is something so beautiful and really vulnerable and really eternal about a newborn where it kind of puts together those, those two pieces that we're hardwired for, right? It puts together this, like, connection of life and this hope, this hope of what's to come. It's just beautiful space. Here she comes, here she comes. Here's Mama. Thank you. Hmm. Okay, so after those 40 days purification rites, Mary and Joseph head to the temple in Jerusalem to, to finish out the process. So let's look in the map again. So, again, Nazareth up top, going south to Bethlehem was where they had the baby. And now they're going through the purification rites after the baby, and they have to go up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was only six miles (laughs) from Bethlehem. And I say that because they've already done a huge trek from Nazareth, which was 80 miles. But, again, imagine, so 40 days out, it's about six weeks after a woman births a baby, six weeks afterwards, she is walking through mountainous terrain for six miles to get to the temple. What? I would not have been ready for that, I don't think, but it's just amazing. So at the temple in verse 24 that we already read, their offerings may seem insignificant, a pair of doves or two young birds, but that actually reveals to us that they were indeed poor because the expectation would have been for one of those animals to at least been a lamb and then maybe a pigeon. But all that they could offer were two pigeons or two doves. So that's a good clue for us. And it may also give us a clue that perhaps the Magi visited them after that temple visit, because the Magi came and offered these three amazing gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought enough gold to fit a king. They would have been able to afford a lamb after given those gifts. So it just makes me wonder about that. That's not a definitive, yes, it happened that way. Makes me wonder because of the gifts that were given. Also, I just want to briefly mention that this week in your time with the Lord, if you want to go a little deeper and wonder a little deeper, 
I would encourage you to keep reading in Luke 2, specifically verse 25 and 38, where Mary and Joseph are still in this temple experience, and they came across two different individuals, one, one man named Simeon and another woman named Anna, and without hesitation, at separate moments, these people declare and confirm, this is the Messiah. And so that's really amazing. I think that's really powerful. But instead, I want us to go back and wonder a little bit deeper about the Magi. So let's read, let's flip over to Matthew 2. So here's the context, heading into Matthew 2. King Herod is interacting with the Magi. The Magi, and there were probably definitely more than three, and traveling in a large group, have traveled far from the east, outside of King Herod's territory. These were not Jewish believers. Okay, They lived outside of King Herod's territory, traveling to Jerusalem, following a star, looking for the newborn king of Jews. And of course, King Herod feels threatened and confirms with his priests and teachers where this would take place. If the Messiah was born, where would it have happened? And they say, well, Bethlehem. So King Herod learns when the Magi first saw the star and asked for the Magi to find the child in Bethlehem, if he's there, and tell him, or bring him, or tell, tell me where he is because I want to worship him, which of course he does not want to worship him, okay? But he's trying to play out this evil plan. So let's pick up in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then the, the chapter continues. Next thing you know, Joseph gets warned by an angel to escape to Egypt because Herod is going to come after your son. And sure enough, once King Herod feels outsmarted by the Magi, he, he does horrifically plan to have all the baby boys who were two years and under in and near Bethlehem be killed. So let's connect these two timelines that we've been talking through from Luke 2 and Matthew 2. So you have the birth of Christ, and then before eight days old, the shepherds came to visit him. On the eighth day, he was circumcised, and then around six weeks old, 40 days out, he was presented to the Lord in Jerusalem. And then you see that highlighted kind of gold long rectangle, that sometime in there is when the Magi came. And we're not quite sure when, but we know it was before they went to Egypt, of course. But we're not sure when, when they actually fled. But you see, there was time here. There was time. This wasn't right after each other, very quick events, okay? So as I sift through... Um, 
just this context and in the this point in the scripture wondering when the magi came <clears throat> when they came and they actually saw mary holding jesus he was in bethlehem still and they were in a house not a manger so the location in which they actually saw the messiah was different than how the shepherds saw the messiah it was in a different location so that's interesting. But what really captures my wonder the most about the Magi's visit were the gifts. Were the gifts. And I found this excerpt out of a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. And I feel like this, this little excerpt really encapsulates a lot of what I read about these gifts. So I want to share that with you this morning. Why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? When taken as gifts for a newborn king, the items that the Magi brought appear inappropriate, especially the frankincense and myrrh. Gold fits the idea of kingly wealth, but perfumes may not have been the same standard. We must instead imagine the gifts as offerings of foreign dignitaries. Just as diplomats from other countries bring gifts representing their cultures, these magi brought the products specific to theirs. They honored the king of Jews in a way that fit their nationality. In a way, in fact, they stood in as representatives of all the non-Jewish nations. Their acknowledgement presaged the offer of grace to all people of the earth, and their gifts hinted at the coming of Gentiles to offer themselves to Christ. The ancient church also understood the gifts to symbolize aspects of Christ's life and ministry, the work he would do. The gold, as mentioned before, suggested his royalty as king of the Jews and lord of lords. In the frankincense, they saw his divinity, and the myrrh represented his humanity that to the fullest extent, because of myrrh, suggests death and burial. Thus the gifts came to show Jesus as king, God, and man. So that's really fascinating. And, and I don't think that that was on the forefronts of the Magi's mind. I think that they were coming and offering the gifts from their culture as, a, as to the king of Jews, and I think the collective Jewish community really saw a lot of reflection of God's sovereignty through those gifts of what they could have meant. And I think that's really powerful. It's amazing. So these were no white elephant gifts. <laughs> they really carried a lot of weight and provision uh, several commentaries said that these gifts would have actually provided for them and sustained them on their flight to Egypt. It would have been sustaining for them. So for our last exercise this morning to capture our wonder, my dear friend Emily Mantia has put together something special for us involving frankincense and myrrh. So I want to invite our ushers forward. We're actually going to take a moment and interact with these gifts. So what you will see is we're going to have these little baskets, and in the glass jar, you are going to see 
some salt in there, and there is some frankincense oil in here. And I want you just to take a moment and smell. Not, not a big whiff. <laughs> just a light whiff will be sufficient. And I want you to wonder just what this smells like. Frankincense. You gentlemen can go ahead. Sorry, you're waiting on my cue. <laughs> and in the sachets, in the, in the little white sachets, is myrrh. So just kind of take a, what did these smell like? Frankincense is actually a resin, and it's pulled from the, from the sap of a tree. And initially, biblically, it was known as the only incense allowed to be present at the altar for burning. It was highly regarded, highly regarded, frankincense. It's also known still to this day to relieve stress, to relieve anxiety. So if some of, you know, someone here, if you take a good whiff, I'll help you bring down some of you, what you're feeling this morning. That'd be good for me, actually. Um, it actually helps with physical pain. And Emily, she actually uses these oils um, in her kiddos' bath, in their bath water, especially after they've just had their round of vaccines. It's a very natural, calming agent, really good for the body. So myrrh is also pulled from a tree. It's also a resin. And biblically, most noted for being the balming agent in a lot of burial rituals, it was very, very good for the skin, very good, and had a lot of healing properties to it. And it was also used for perfume. They would often put it in anointing oil as well. And very soothing for the skin. Many, many kings and queens have soaked in this myrrh oil. It's good for their skin. So these gifts were likely used providentially to support the family, which I love that. So it's interesting. So my hope today, as we close together, is that we take this experience that we've shared and continue practicing capturing our wonder. As you can see, just just in our time together, it doesn't have to be complicated or too hard. But just allow yourself some time. Find your swing. And let your mind and your heart wonder about who God is and what he's doing now, present day, currently, in you, around you. If you need some guidance or even some ideas this week, these are some ideas that came to my mind. Um, You could try to take a walk. And not just a walk to check out, a walk to intentionally wonder. Okay? Notice what's around you. Number two, I'm a big fan of this, turn down the noise. Turn down the noise. 
often you will find, if you were a little fly in my car, riding with me around town while I'm doing my errands or whatnot, you know, I'm a worship leader, but I often don't have any music on. And especially if there's no kiddos in my car, (laughs) it's silent, and I'm just like, Like, I I love that time. It's just silent. Just allowing my heart time. Okay? Turn down the noise. So sometimes that can mean turning off the TV. But Shannon, that's that's where I get my news. Well, maybe maybe try the paper. You know, maybe try a newspaper. Maybe try two different types of newspapers. You know, try to turn down some of the media input. And see what happens for your soul, for your heart, okay? Notice what's happening around you. Just literally ask the question, what is happening around me right now? Go get your coffee, sit at the table, and just say, what do I notice? Okay? And ask curious questions. When you get into the Word this week, when you spend some time with the Lord this week, ask questions. Don't just plow through it. Lord, what did this mean? Or why did you say that? Or what, what does this reveal about who you are? Okay? Let's close in prayer. We will have prayer teams in the front here. If you do need prayer this morning, please do not hesitate. Um, we'd love to share that time with you. Father, we thank you for all that you are. And your birth story and how all the details matter. We thank you and praise you. You are sovereign, and you are good. Be with us and help us to continue to wonder about you. Help us to be intentional. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.